are you all doing? This is Seth. I wanted to re-release this episode. So one of the things I think I'll do intentionally this year is just some of the episodes that had a big impact on me or a big impact maybe on the community that I think need to be reheard. I just want to re-release with some of the meaning behind it. Easter is coming. By the time you hear this, about a week, less than a week, somewhere in there. And I feel like so many churches, we we fall in love with the pageantry and we fall in love with things that have little to do with Easter. And uh, this conversation that I had last year, right as we went in Lent and Ash Wednesday, a year later, I've revisited it and it's still so deeply impactful for me. And so here you go, a re-released episode uh, from last year at Easter uh, with Alexander Shia on, you know, community, intentionality, and kind of why the church does Easter and what Easter should and could mean, you know, for oneness, and for community, and for you and I. I really hope you enjoy it. And may you have a blessed Easter, everyone. Part of the beauty and the power of Easter is in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, that we come together to pray together. That that is the great Easter experience, is the livening grace that happens in us because we pray together. And secondly, regardless of what your community may be doing or regardless of what words you may hear in the sermon, I would ask you to remember that these great prayer services of quote-unquote Holy Week are about the incarnate present moment death and resurrection that's in the midst of your relationships and your family and your community and reach for that and ask God for the grace of that. Through his righteous son chose us to become. Before we get started, some quick appreciation to those of you that have gone on to iTunes and rated the show. If you haven't done that, click the button. I would ask for you to click all five stars, but you're more than welcome to just do four if you if you feel so led. But no, seriously, thank you so much for your engagement, for your involvement, and for those of you that have shared the show. You are the engine that drives the conversations that we have. I, I enjoy doing them, and I'm glad that, that it is helping some of you, as it, as it is me. Uh, I would ask if you could, click the Patreon button at uh, canisaythisatchurch.com. Learn a bit more about the show. If you're feeling what is happening here and you'd like to be a little more involved, your generosity would go a long way, more than you know. Welcome to the show. I'm Seth, your host. Today we have Alexander Shy with us again. We are all, and we all have been over these past few weeks, in a season of Lent. We've learned to let things go. We've picked up new things because we are creatures of habit. But there is more than one way to think about Easter, to think about our Lord. And a lot of what we as Americans, I believe, struggle with is a lack of history a lack of culture, and a lack of understanding around many of the holidays that we celebrate. And so I talk about that a bit with with Alexander today, and I got a lot out of this, and I believe that you will too. Be ready to be challenged. Your Easter is not under assault. It is even more glorious and more beautiful and more worthy than we give it due. Alexander, thank you so much for for being willing to coming back on the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am I'm pleased that you've been able to make time to come back on today. I'm honored. And uh, as you and your guests will soon hear, I'm recovering from some sort of a respiratory infection. And so I've got sort of a raspy voice, but I think I think it adds character. It, it's yeah. <laughs> I did a seminar on, on Saturday by a microphone whispering for hours. So let, let's see if we can do this today. Well, well, whisper as loud as you need. I'll, I'll crank the gain on, on my end. Right. And, and so, and by now, if, for those that are listening, if, if you haven't gone back and listened to the episode prior that we did with Alexander, 
uh, please go back and do that. I think it will be pertinent for today's conversation. But you had said something while we were coordinating that, Alexander, about just Holy Week, Lent, the gospel, the history of Easter, and all that goes with that. And, and I quickly realized that that topic is fascinating. I know very little about it, which shame on me as a Christian. I probably should know more. And so I am looking forward to discussing that, not necessarily at length, but, but in, in a little bit today. And uh, here we are recording this just days away from Ash Wednesday. So this is very timely. Well, I guess let's, I guess let's start there. So I want to spend a little bit of time on, I guess, the history of Easter, but I'm more interested in how we take that history, view it through a lens, the, the Quadratus view of the, of the Gospels, and, and how I can live in that today, and how Easter can not necessarily lose meaning, but, but gain, gain something more whole, for lack of a better word. Yes. And so I guess just a, a bit of the history of that, what, obviously we haven't always celebrated Easter. I, there's, I can't see that happening the, on the annual anniversary of, of Christ's death and resurrection. So what is kind of our, as, as Christians, our story of Easter? Well, actually, we have celebrated Easter from almost the very first years uh, into what I call the era of the resurrection. And um, one of the things that many Christians forget, and even our, our scholars have tended to overlook, is that we called Sunday Easter. Every, every Sunday uh, in Christendom was Easter. And so for about 200 years, we celebrated Easter 52 times a year. And then there came a moment when we began to, to do something on one Easter a year, which was different from the other 51. So Easter is, uh, Easter is the celebration of death and resurrection. And that was the core experience of every Sunday gathering. And then 200 years into our history, we began to think, well, we needed to do something on one Easter a year that we didn't do on the other 51 Easter's. And so when, when, when people say, let's talk about Easter, I assume that we want to focus on what's unique about the, the Easter in the springtime that's different from the rest of the Easter's of the year. Yeah. And it, everything in Christianity comes from what's happening on the ground and within the communities. It's like we, we don't create theological feasts. We create feasts which have an, an, uh, a compelling spiritual practice to them. So here's sociologically what I think is happening around the time that we develop an Easter in the springtime distinct from the other 51 Easter's of the year. Um, Christianity as an art form and as a new moment in human consciousness, we are, we develop a pan tribal communion. And as I've talked about in other places that <clears throat> other traditions, including our, our mother tradition, Judaism have the profound, beautiful truth that all are one before God which makes each of us brother and sister to the other. Right. However, um, before the first century and before uh, Jesus and Christianity, we don't have evidence of other traditions having a room or a table where everyone was welcome to sit side by side. That this is really um, a new way of being family that, begins for us in the presence of Jesus, the historical Jesus in the first century. And even, even Judaism at this point uh, organized the, the synagogue life where either the men in the front and the women in the back or the men on the floor and the women in the balcony or, or um, the men to the right and the women to the left with a wall down the synagogue. So the idea of a table 
where you sit side by side is quite um, radical, fresh, and in my view, a step forward in, in our development of our relationship with God and each other. Yeah. And, and so I guess the table then is, is, an, is an equalizing factor or an equalizing force. Totally. Well, the, the table becomes um, a symbolic expression of Jesus the Christ, where, where we all um, share an equal measure and honor and distinction and responsibility. <clears throat> well, Christianity uh, in the first 200 years, especially during the time that we were greatly persecuted and executed, when, when, you're, when you're running from the emperor uh, because you're likely to be killed, uh, there's, a, there's a compelling harmony within the community because we're facing this external uh, uh, force or pressure. But as we go on and as we spread across the Mediterranean, and uh, our diversity increases, uh, a diversity of gender and tribe and socioeconomic status, poor and wealthy and slave, um, and people from the eastern provinces and the western provinces, this diversity becomes a cacophony. If you can ever imagine Christians having vigorous discussion with, with, with each other. And as the time of persecution lessens, it doesn't go away yet, but it lessens. And when it lessens, we have that luxury of debate. Uh, and the debate is, you're doing what? You believe Jesus how? Uh, you interpret the scriptures in what way? Um, you're conducting baptisms using what elements? And this lively discussion, which might have started out as holy curiosity, ends up becoming um, a, a rather fractious uh, debate, and we begin to break apart from each other. And in some ways, um, because Christianity at this point is not formalized and really is not going to become formalized until all the Roman oppression is gone, and we're no longer illegals. But at this moment, uh, there is a wisdom that moves amongst us that says, ah, once a year, we must return to the deep spiritual practice of communion, not only as an outer ritual, but as an inner spiritual practice which lessens the dogmatic divisions within us and increases the felt sense of our union and communion, both with our God and each other. I hear that, and, and I feel like church still does that today. Everybody argues about everything. And it, and it makes me think, and this is probably a tangent, in my church we have World Communion Day, and so I hear you saying that the intent of setting up Easter was to for, put aside your dogma and, and, and love each other effectively. And I wonder if, if maybe our, well, at least in the West, I wonder if maybe that didn't work well, and so they tried again with World Communion Day. But I'd hate to get, I'd hate to get off topic. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think you're, you're right because what's what's happened over nineteen hundred years or almost two thousand years of quote unquote Easter is that it became a historical story and a proclamation about an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. And please don't hear me that I in any way doubt that there was an empty tomb and a risen Jesus. I'm just saying that the, the, the impact of that feast uh, in our tradition is about present moment spiritual practice, not the proclamation of um, a glorious sacred newspaper. So talk talk more about that. You so I, I hear you to say that the, the 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 most of the messages and most of the the pageantry, for lack of a better word, that you're going to hear is about here is your future hope. Look at this one scene of the entire story of Christ and and hinge on that. And you're saying instead that the intent of the Easter story is that today is Easter and tomorrow's Easter and yesterday was Easter. Yes, and that we are the body 
and we are ever becoming more the body of Christ. Mm. And that to become the body of Christ requires spiritual practice far more than theological discussion. What is so so critical is we are always, as Christians, and I, I, it is our glory that we have um, a, a wide divergence of our thinking about Jesus and about the Christ. And that's exactly as it should be. And it is an incredible bouquet or a diadem. But the reality is, is that because of the beauty of that theological expression, that we tend to become overly identified with our understanding and forget that the core practice is how to bring that expression together as, as the true incarnate body of Jesus here amongst us today. So that therefore there are, there are ways that we have to learn and be reminded about how we talk with each other. Uh, and uh, yelling at each other or vigorously saying this is the right expression of Jesus to each other is not the way of this wide divergent body of Christ. So the early church, an early church I'm now going to talk about um, uh, as we move into the 300s, which is actually the fourth century of Christianity, they created a number of things which they thought of as the community's retreat and the community as a whole was required to be present for this retreat each year. What do you mean required? Like you had to pilgrimage there or? That if you are a baptized member of this community, this is not optional. As, as, uh, my grandmother would say of us on Sunday, uh, Sunday lunch or in the American South Sunday dinner, I expect you at my table or if you're sick, we will have gone to the hospital and brought you flowers. <laughs> or if you're in the cemetery, we'll, we will have stopped by this morning. But barring your being dead or sick, you be here. No exceptions allowed. And it, it was absolutely incumbent upon a baptized member to remove themselves from everyday life and take part in what the early church conceived of as essentially a 72-hour retreat, which we today might call the celebration of Easter. So Easter was not just an hour-long service or, a, or even a few hours. Uh, and it wasn't just one day, it was three days. And over these three days, we are going to enter into the spiritual practices. We're going to refresh ourselves. We're going to sort of return to boot camp for how a Christian community chooses to live with each other in such a way that it increases the evident presence of Christ amongst us and the evident presence of Christ between myself and, and, and Christ. So it was both the practice of transcendence, myself with God, and immanence, myself uh, with God present in our midst. So the first thing was the decision that they were going to craft this retreat. Uh, and the second piece of the decision was that the retreat would happen in the springtime. And in part, that was a historical connection to that day 2,000 years ago or 200 years ago. Mm -hmm. But there also was another reality, which was it was expressly chosen to be the springtime because the springtime is energetically in us when the sap rises. And when the sap rises, as you come out of the winter doldrums and the sap rises, is particularly a difficult moment in community life. It can be a difficult moment in community life. And it, we may notice just in uh, world news and world history how many street protests and revolutions start in the springtime. Um, there is a, um, a, a natural process in the human self 
of a release of energy. And so it is Christianity recognized this and recognized the incarnation of this and said, ah, for every reason, the springtime is the right seasonal moment for us to have this retreat about how we live with each other and the types of spiritual practices we engage because we want to create the sense of deeper the sense of oneness and harmony with each other. I find it striking, Alexander, and I, I listened to your Christmas episode with Rob Bell, and I find it striking that our two, I guess, pillars of holidays as as Christianity seem to center around, you know, the darkest day on our solar you know, our solar cycle. And and so the winter solstice and then also the spring equinox. I, I can't think that that's an accident. It, it, it's obviously not an accident, but I find it, I find it not coincidental. I don't know what the word is. I find it enchanting it's, that well, though, that they mirror each other. Absolutely. And, and, and Seth, my my perspective is is it's, it's not coincidental. In fact, it's quite intentional. And and to go even further, the intention is that Pentecost would be very near the summer solstice. Pentecost, which is the height of our Christian spirituality, mm-hmm. would be set in a time very near the, the, the most glowingly radiant sunlight of the year. That, those, that there's a, 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 an incarnational biological expression um, of what Jesus the Christ does for us that is also very much like summer solstice and Pentecost. You can't see this, but I didn't think about Pentecost and that actually gave me the the skin little hairs raised there. That was I hadn't thought I hadn't thought about that. That's and I mean for for many of us and I'm you know I'm an old Catholic and I, I so I I don't know your tradition as well. But for us Catholics, we would talk about Pentecost as the birthday of the church. And I don't know if you have such a phraseology. Yeah, similar, and and our worship service will have a lot of songs built around our souls are on fire and many nations and many tongues and and so yeah, there's a little bit of that, but it is it is a celebration of this started or this this began in earnest right here, and it's the ministry that we're still doing today. Uh, you, a lot of that language. So it, to to take the idea of birthday back as a present moment reality that the whole journey of Lent and Easter is about recreating or reanimating the community now. So that, so that the idea of Pentecost as, as the birthday of the church is because of the spiritual practices that we have reengaged and deepened in ourselves, we have set our communion on a new foundation. Uh, that foundation is Jesus the Christ, but that we must actually engage in the spiritual practices because we are this wild, radical folly of diversity. Uh, it is so much easier to create a communion out of uniformity. Uh, we, we chose to say right at the heart of the world's diversity is our communion. But it's a communion that is not easy to live with unless you are fully engaged in the spiritual practice of it. Yeah. Sociologically, we're historically in a time in the early centuries where our diversity is overwhelming our felt sense of charity and communion. We choose to create a three-day retreat and celebration of the practices of uh, our union with God and each other. We set those in the springtime, which has the incarnational aspect of the sap rising and also a historical connection to the day that Jesus came forth from the tomb. And now we are going to choose the text for the retreat. And this is what this actually 40 years ago is was the first real marker on my way to Quadratus in the in the four gospel journey was that they chose only the gospel of John to be the text of this retreat. And I was like, what that that just 
it, it, it stunned me to realize that going back into the early 300s, they had already chosen a gospel for a function. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what did they know about the text of John that made it so compelling that, that only John would be the text of Easter? So it, this is interesting because by their saying that, you know, clearly uh, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke have resurrection appearances. But that's not what they were talking about. It's like every resurrection appearance is not equal to the experience of Easter that they were crafting in the 300s, the, the fourth century. And so only the text of John has that type of Easter experience. And it was only the text of John that was prayed and studied uh, and reflected and celebrated. All right. So now what's in the text of John that would be the core of this experience? From, from my perspective and from my sort of trying to put this back together, and I, sometimes I, I feel like this is one of the detective stories on television these days where you're, you're using all this science to figure out the fingerprints and these filaments of DNA that are left behind, etc. I situate the Gospel of John is having come out of the community of Ephesus late first century. And what is one of the things that's compelling about Ephesus is of all the of the four places where a gospel text was revealed or composed, Ephesus is the place which had the dilemma of being pan-tribal. It had the gift and had the dilemma. We know that Ephesus receives Paul's preaching in the 40s of the first century about the oneness of all people. And Ephesus is a place of tremendous diversity where people all the way from, Ephesus is is in Turkey, but because it was the eastern capital, the Roman Empire, which means the courts were there. People from India and North Africa would come to Ephesus to argue in the Roman courts. So Ephesus had this teeming diversity of tribe. We also know that Ephesus had a very affluent and educated population. It had a very, very vital women's community. And the other thing which is so heartbreakingly true about Ephesus is its its affluence was built on the fact that it was the center of the Roman slave trade. And whereas the city of Ephesus was this gleaming, affluent city, underneath those beautiful buildings were hundreds of miles of of caves and tunnels where the slaves were kept. In the midst of this vital capital wealthy, diverse city built upon the slave trade. Paul preaches oneness, which even includes, which even is extended to the slaves, which is totally countercultural at this moment, at this moment. Mm -hmm. However, by 50 years later, when we think the gospel of John is revealed or composed, the Christian community in Ephesus is fighting all the old prejudices, all the old hierarchy, all the old divisions, all the old categories, all the who's the in and who's the out and who's on top and who's on bottom. All of that has resurfaced. And what John's text must do for this community is bring them back into deeper harmony in Jesus the Christ. And so this is the text of the four, which, is, which offers a series of meditations on how we uh, move through the human stuffness that separates us from each other, and that that stuffness is always going to be there. You don't do this once and it's done. That all the stuff that John brings us in in the meditations is something that we might powerfully reflect on once a year, that we need to keep these 
limitations and wounds in us, we need to keep them in our heart and keep them before our mind's eye, not in any guilt or shame sense, but because uh, with oneness, you're either moving towards oneness or you're moving away from oneness. If you're staying static, you're moving away from oneness. You're, 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 this is, there's, there's no rest day with oneness. It's always a matter of which way are you moving. And the material in the Gospel of John is the profound spiritual director for us of what we must keep aware of, because if we don't, it's going to gobble us whole. And we're going to, when we get gobbled whole, we're, we're going to be, we're going to think we're really doing Christian community, but we're not doing Christian community. What we're doing is we're, we're enslaving each other under the idea of uniformity. We're, we're not doing the diverse union of the human family before God. All right. Mm. Now, this 72-hour retreat and celebration is going to be normed off of, and it's going to use great, beautiful texts from the Gospel of John as the Easter moment, which re-knits our union and compels us forward. To be unified Why John then? I mean, the other Gospels obviously have their own passion story, their own passion play, for lack of a better word. So why? Well, I guess I guess to, to flip the question, what is there anything wrong with the other three? Well, and Mark comes to mind. It has two endings, depending on what Bible you want to read. So what what is missing in the other three that that the early church couldn't couldn't glean the same from that? Because and from my work of Quadratus and from what we talked about in the in the, the your previous podcast, each of these gospels performs a function. They're not the sacred newspaper of uh, of the history of Jesus. Each text performs a particular function, and Matthew's function is to show is Jesus in in Matthew. Jesus shows us how to wake up and begin a new journey. Uh, Mark's function is to show us how to move through moments of tremendous trial and obstacle. And Luke's function is to show us how to mature as a disciple and an apostle in that way of Jesus, how to be of uh, ever greater service. John's function, this is the reason it's being chosen, John's function is how you create union and deeper oneness from tremendous diversity. And again, the lesser understanding of Christianity today is we're celebrating historical reality 2,000 years ago, so therefore we can use any text of resurrection from any of the four Gospels. That, would, that was not the origins of the Feast of Easter. The Feast of Easter was about the spiritual practices that we must engage in to keep our communion deepening, and therefore they rightly discerned that the appropriate gospel text for that type of Easter experience is John, and I would say only John. Hmm. So as you're ready, we'll move into the text and yeah. see what, uh, what power it brought to the Christians of the uh, beginning in in the 300s or, or the, the 4th century. Well, yeah, let's go in. I'm, 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 ready. I'm ready. Let's do that. One of the things is, is that this, this retreat, um, this 72 hours of Easter, this retreat would always begin on a glorious high note. And I won't go into the history of the types of prayers 
that this retreat would start with. But this retreat did not start with, you are a sinner far away from God. No, this retreat started with, you are made of the substance of God. And we are drawn together here for this 72 hours because you want to be ever more beautiful and radiant expression of that substance. And we, we see that early in the text of John, when John gives us this very short story, brief account of Jesus renaming Simon as Petros. And the power of this is, and we've sort of lost it because Petros can be translated as either stone or rock. And we've, um, we've limited this text to Peter when the whole text of John, every, every figure in the text of John is about all humanity. It's like all of these characters in John are stand-ins for every one of us. And so Jesus is saying not just to Simon Peter of the first century, but Jesus is saying to you, Seth, and to everyone who's listening, and, and to me, you are rock, or you are stone. Now, what does this mean for first century metaphor, and what might this mean today? Well, just to go back to our Jewishness, we know that all the the ritual washing vessels in the synagogue or the temple were made of stone. Now, why would a why would a a, a washing vessel vessel, which in in their senses you washed away your corruption, in a washing vessel in Judaism, why would it be made of stone? It's because stone, in their belief, takes on no corruption. That stone is. Um, a permanent, uh, and, and maybe in our language, the metaphor would be better. Uh, it's like a diamond or gold, but it, it has a, a solid permanence. And Jesus is saying to Simon, and Jesus is saying to each one of us, you are made of stone. You are made of the core substance of God. That's who you are. And no matter what you do in your life, that's not going to change. You can run away from it. You can act against it. You can cover it over. You can forget it. You've got free will. All of those are, all of those are choices you can make. But what is true, what Jesus is saying is, I understand you are made of an incorruptible substance. You are made literally of God's dust. Hmm. And so, therefore, the opening meditation or prayer of the 72 hours of Easter was to remember this. Remember who you are. Remember the radiance that God has put in you. Remember that it's because of that radiance, because of that love, we've come together because we want that individually and corporally to shine more. So, for all of those people who think about that the journey to Lent begins with the rite of ashes. I want you to remember that the rite of ashes is something that comes in Christianity 700 years later. And it comes from a, a moment which is not our best moment. It comes from a time when we have lost the sense that we are inherently uh, connected to God. And it comes from a time where we talk about how far away from God we are and how we have to earn our way back into God's presence. What a bunch of hooey. (laughs) The early Christians had it better. We're not separated from God, except maybe in our minds. God is right here, as close as our heartbeat. Claim it, live into it, know it, uh, feel it, express it. And, And that the feeling and the expression of that will draw you to want to do the work to be ever closer. So this, this early Christian celebration of Easter was predicated on, this is love calling to love. Uh, Jesus saying to you, you are love, that's who you are, and I am the heart of love, and my heart of love draws you closer. Allow it. 
So then the next series of Easter meditations are going to be to use great passages from John to understand how we are already part of this heart of love and how we have perhaps forgotten or covered it over or in some ways run away from it. The church in these days traditionally used uh, a series of gospel texts which were surrounded with great prayer and also during the time that these great texts were, were read or prayed, we fasted. And we didn't fast because we were sinful. We fasted because we wanted to so cleanse our body and our spirits. We wanted to be so hungry to understand deeper the voice of love that we, we wanted our we wanted to actually have the longing not only in our minds and our hearts, but in our bodies. And we wanted to understand that the same longing that we had for food was also our longing for the voice of God. Mm. And the, the texts that were used during this, this, these hours of fasting and reflection and, and asking God to heal us of our brokenness before God and our brokenness with each other, uh, there were four texts. Uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the man born blind, and Jesus and the raising of Lazarus. And each one of those texts have a, um, offered an examination of our life with each other and how because we all so deeply care about God and our experience of God, and that in part, as humans, we take our longing to our heads, and in our heads we have all kinds of theological ideas, and that those theological ideas are brilliant, and yet they oftentimes end up separating us from each other. And what we want to do in this early moment of Easter is we want to step away from the dogmatic formulations and fall in love with the fact that all of us are hungering and longing for our journey with God. That's what draws us together. Hearing, um, hearing you talk about fasting in that way makes me sad at the way that people fast for Lent now, just giving up chocolate or, or giving up Facebook or giving up whatever, not knowing the history of that right. and rethinking it now. Lip service is not even the right word. It's, it's less than that. Oh, man. And the early church would call this the wedding fast, uh, the, the marriage fast, in the sense that this fast was not doleful or sorrowful or penitential. It was expectant that, we, that it was like in the midst of this Easter and our excitement about it, uh, almost the same as perhaps the excitement in... Uh, Whenever we are on the edge of a, of a major experience in our life where the, our, our stomachs sort of flutter and our focus is not on food. So after these great meditations, and I realize for, for the sake of time, I won't go into like the impact of each of the four texts. But the, when we come out of this, hearing these texts and reflecting on them and asking for um, quietly asking for forgiveness before God and for each other for all the, the ways that we have not lived out the fullness of God's presence with us this past year. We then enter into this incredible triumphant prayer, which is the full Easter experience. And it is John's text of the foot washing. And again, what's happened of late is that we've looked at the foot washing as a, in a historical way as a major marker on the way to Easter, whereas the early church said, oh, no, the foot washing is full on Easter because uh, not as a ritual form alone, but if you understand that the longing for God and the gift of 
of receiving God's grace in you. If you understand that, nobody has to tell you what to do next because what you want to do with that reality is you want to go out and you want to serve. You want to, you want to serve everyone. You want to be the love that God has given you. Mm-hmm. And this is the foot washing ceremony. It was not about 12, just 12 people. It was here when, when our heart fully appreciates the experience of what God has done for me and is doing for me. I don't have an option about foot washing. As I have been washed, I want to wash others. I want to wash all others. I want to bend and bow low before all others and be a servant of our God of love that might help awaken that same experience in their heart. And that it is only by our participation in the death and and resurrection experience of Jesus the Christ that we can truly do quote unquote foot washing that it's that as we understand the ego death and the death of our small selves before the greater God of love that brings us to larger life. And that was what the early church understood by death and resurrection. They death and resurrection at the end of life, they considered small death and resurrection. They considered large death and resurrection, the moment that in your present moment life, you learn the way to lower your ego, the way you learn to sacrifice in some ways your own ego desires in and learn how to live for a larger purpose, well, learn well, how to live with larger reality. Well, that for them was the great death and resurrection experience. And they said to the degree that you practice that death and resurrection throughout your life, that final death and resurrection at the end of your life is going to be a, is, is, is going to be like a, a small cut in your finger because your whole way of being has been living the experience of death and resurrection. Yeah. It brings to mind the, the, the scripture, you die daily. And, and the way that I hear that is, is a part of my prideful, selfish self dies daily and, and rises daily in, in love and in abundance and in service and in gratitude. Yeah. Tell it, brother. Amen. <laughs> I, I read you say somewhere, or maybe I read someone else say somewhere, maybe I heard it, I don't know. You spoke in, in the differences on when, when Jesus is on the cross, and they bring him the wine to drink, and there's either a difference, or they bring him his drink, there's a difference between John's gospel with the other three, or a difference with Mark's yes. gospel with the other, and, and it's pivotal. And yes. I, I can't remember which gospel it is. Can you well, speak to it, that a little bit? Totally. This is exactly the very next point, and that is, um, so the, the first celebration of Easter is foot washing, because we see in the foot washing uh, our participation in death and resurrection. The second celebration of full-on Easter is John's passion, and only John's passion. And it is because... Um, in John's Passion, Jesus on the cross, the wine is put to his lips in John. And in the other three texts, Jesus does not take the wine. But in John's Passion, he does take the wine. And then right after he drinks the bitter wine, and this is what's important about this. This is not, this is not the wine that we serve at table today. This is a very sour, bitter wine that most of us would turn away from. And when Jesus drinks the bitter wine in John, he says, and now it is finished. And the spiritual practice of Easter as re-knitting the community in the face of love is that we too are being asked by the same power of Jesus Christ to agree to drink of the world's bitterness, that we do not turn away from the bitterness, we do not turn away from the divisions, we do not turn away from the hurts and the wounding, we drink it. 
And by the fact that with Jesus we drink it, we also know the power of Jesus to transmute it. And so then comes the stunning next line in John's text. And I don't mean this in any glorified sense. Uh, my tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition, we've got a lot of wounds going today. But I really like to give us some credit where credit is due. Um, the Catholic uh, translation of the text of John in this one instance um, is a, a step above uh, the other translations because they have maintained that the text at this moment should say, having drunk the wine and said, now it is finished. Jesus bows his head and delivers over the spirit. In John, and this is why John's passion is an Easter passion, not a Lenten passion. John's passion is death, resurrection at this moment, and Pentecost. Mm. Now, we're, not, we're not doing, we're doing a spiritual truth. We're not doing a, a linear historical truth. That, that the moment through the Christ that any one of us can also drink of the world's bitterness by that same reality, then we too will help deliver the spirit to the world. And by spirit, you you mean capital V, the Holy Spirit, correct? The Holy Spirit. That's mm. why all the other three passions at this moment recount Jesus as saying, Jesus bows his head and delivers over his spirit. John is, Jesus bows his head and delivers over the Spirit. Literally, Jesus breathes out his last breath as the Spirit to the world from the cross. People should, people should have to pay money to hear that. <laughs> or no, no, let's give it away for free. It's better yes, free because then people will hear it. I, in the interest of time and, and some constructive feedback some, from people I, I, I trust— I want to, so we, we break apart Lent and we rethink Easter and we move past the pageantry and we find and embrace Christ that we are made of and, and, and being subsistent in. So for the people listening and, and, and just a thought in closing as they go into Holy Week and into Easter with their church, with their families, with their communities, bring it home. So if we take away and we strip away the, the pageantry, what do they take home? What do they rest in? How do they, how do they, how do they bring it all together to surmise it? Well, I mean, there there are a couple of things here. And yes, um, I have a two hundred page text about the ancient Easter, which is about a thousand. Well, it's some eight hundred years earlier, older than Holy Week. Holy Week is not. Uh, the early church would not have recognized Holy Week because it's predicated on a linear historical meditation on Jesus's last days. Mm -hmm. Whereas the early church is doing, here are the spiritual practices about how you reform and deepen communion and community. Most of us have, can have nothing, have nothing, no, no power to, to, to reformulate Holy Week at this point. My, my, my invitation is pray Holy Week. Um, be touched by the beauty of it. But, but pray it as family and as community and realizing that the power of it um, is, I, re I remember the old saying when I was growing up, uh, a family that prays together stays together, that, that part of the beauty and the power of Easter is in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, that we come together to pray together. That that is the great Easter experience is the livening grace that happens in us because we pray together. And secondly, regardless of what your community may be doing or regardless of what words you may hear in the sermon, um, I would ask you to remember that these great prayer services of quote-unquote Holy Week are about the incarnate present moment death and resurrection that's in the midst of your relationships and your family and your community and reach for that and ask God for the grace of that. Mm. And, and thirdly, remember that diversity is our largest cross 
and our greatest glory. Doing communities of uniformity is easier, but that's not that's not the journey that God is asking us for today. God is asking for us to find a oneness beneath the thoughts and the superficialities of what we look like and who we are, and to come home to know that beyond all that other stuff, we truly are brothers and sisters of the one source. Amen. Amen to that. Well, I will... I want to save the the remainder of your voice. I, I, I know you're with family, and and I appreciate the time that you've given this afternoon. And 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 as I I alluded to at the end, Alexander, I have come to love your work, your ministry, your words. I've I've loved reading. And people that don't, please follow Alexander on Facebook. He's extremely engaged and heartfelt and interactive, uh, which is which is refreshing. And so. How can how can people further in, engage in this thought process and this way of viewing Christ uh, going forward? How would well, you where would you direct them to? A couple of things. And first of all, I would direct people to the website that supports this work, which is www.quadratus.com, and I'll spell that out. It's Q U A Quad for four, and then Ra R A. T-O-S, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S.com. And on that website is just a whole range of um, uh, good information and podcasts like yours. Uh, and there's, there's also a store, and in that store are links to buy the book, Heart and Mind, and especially the what I'm calling the community guides, which is a way for two or more people to come together to read the journey of the gospel as my spiritual journey with Christ. And I just want to really uh, invite people to look at those guides and perhaps grab one other, two other people. This is not about huge numbers. Um, Bring the gospel journey alive in your life. Secondly, um, there is my Facebook page, which is Alexander John Shia dash author. It's my Uh, work Facebook page, and there's just all sorts of further good material that's on that Facebook page. So the Quadratus website and the Alexander John Shia author Facebook page, and then finally, the book, Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. And the word radical there is really true, because if you work with Jesus Christ, Christ is not concerned about superficially changing your mind. Uh, Christ is inviting you to live from a deep place of assurity in the midst of trial and obstacles and all the difficult news that we hear today. Do you want to know a radiant path of contentment, equality, and service before gospel journey for radical transformation? So that, that's it, the website, the Facebook page, and, of course, the book. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, I will, I will let you go there. Thank you so much. Seth, thank you so much, and uh, every blessing of Easter. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your engagement. I want to ask you to, if you didn't do it at the beginning, do it now. Go to iTunes, rank the show. That is the best way that you can help the conversations that are happening here bubble up on the internet so that more people can interact with them. On top of that, share the show. Share it with your family, your friends, Facebook, social media. Whatever avenue you choose is a great avenue. And lastly... I would also ask if you feel so led to become a patron at patreon.com slash can I say this at church. You'll also find a link to that on the website, can I say this at church.com. I am very grateful for those of you that have taken the time and your, your money to do so. I can't tell you how appreciative I am of your willingness to become part of the community that is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. 
Talk to you next week. But when they gather together, they have one thing that holds them, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they love one another like family in that place. And I feel God when I go in there. That's the way that it's supposed to be. That's the way that it's supposed to be.